before we dive into episode 49 with Carl, I've just got some announcements. We made it to 2022. I hope everyone had a happy and safe New Year's weekend. Today marks our first episode in the new year and the first episode of the month, which means it's donation time. Here at Outer Rim Reads, I donate $1 for every patron we have to charity at the start of each month. By the time I'm recording the intro, we have 11 patrons, which means I'm donating $11 to the Community Foundation Boulder County. In Colorado, Boulder County was devastated by the Marshall Fire, which destroyed nearly 1,000 homes and burned across 6,000 acres. Community Foundation Boulder County partners with government and nonprofit organizations to help their community's needs with a commitment to inclusivity and equity as well. If you'd like to learn more about what they do, you can do so at commfound.org. Again, that's commfound.org. I want to thank our patrons who make both the donations and this show possible. Thank you so much for prioritizing this podcast in such a generous way. Also, a massive shout-out to our patron at the Lothal tier, Simon. If anyone wants to join our patron family and get access to bloopers, exclusive shirts, a bonus monthly show, and more, you can do so for as little as $3 a month at patreon.com slash Outer Rim Reads. As a reminder, too, if you'd like to join the discussion on each episode, share your thoughts on our Search Your Readings questions through our social media or by email. Our next discussion question will be at the end of this episode. Now let's get into chapters 23 and 24 of Light of the Jedi. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 49 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In today's episode, we will be discussing chapters 23 and 24 of Light of the Jedi, and I'm joined by Carl LeClaire, host of the Wampa's Lair. Carl, how is it going today? Andrew, I'm super stoked to be here talking some Light of the Jedi. I love playing in the High Republic era, so I'm super thrilled to be on your show. I love what you do here at Outer Rims and uh, super thrilled to be here for definitely my favorite book of the new canon. So thanks for making time for, for me to come on. I'm super excited about this. I mean, thank you for making the time to to come on to talk about this book. I think off air you had mentioned uh, you've read it like at least three times, uh, maybe twice in quick succession. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really liked it. Um, it's I I feel like there's only this is only the second book in my life when I finished it. I was like, I need to re- I need to consume that again right now, and I just I reread it right away. And uh, it is yeah, very it's, captivating. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so good, and it reads so quickly. I think. That and uh, I know you haven't gotten to Rising Storm yet, but the way they just the tightness of the book, the I kind of like the shorter chapters because it's like even if you sit down, you're like, oh, I just want to do a couple chapters today. It's like won't take you that long. It's great. I think there's a brilliance. I just remember so many old legends novels. It'd be a 400 page book with 18 chapters. And you're like, oh, my God, every chapter is like ridiculously long. (laughs) (laughs) There's just something about the way it, it just breaks it up, even though it's the same number of pages. 
uh, just like just having those like kind of quick pauses, I, I I find to be super helpful. It didn't feel like jumpy at all, like especially in the first part, because that was where the chapters were like, you know, OK, two pages later, next chapter. But it just it felt like, you know, it, it hooked you in very effectively, like even with the shortness of the chapters, it, it just had that way of of keeping you captivated. And, I, you know, the second part of the book has entered into kind of a slower pace, um, maybe, you know, I guess longer chaptered pace. But it still has that that effect to to keep me hooked, and you know I am disappointed to not be able to read further because things are definitely hotting up. Uh, I will <laughs> I will note that when you mentioned eight you know eighteen chapters, the seven hundred page book, uh, that reminded me of Plagueis. <laughs> I don't know if you've if you've read Plagueis before. Plagueis is great, but it it is one of the densest Star Wars novels. I w- I would say Catalyst as well. I don't know if you've read Catalyst, which is part of the new canon. It's the, the immediate. Well, yeah, the er, the immediate prequel to Rogue One. And I know you're a Rogue One Rogue One guy, so you'd you'd probably really enjoy that book as well. It might be the same author as Plagueis. It might be. Yes, a, it uh, is James yeah. Lucino. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He likes his long chapters, so. <laughs> Yeah, he likes his med school style textbooks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but before we talk about the chapters that we have got in front of us today, do you mind uh, letting the listeners know a little bit about your background with Star Wars and then also like how you initially got into Light of the Jedi? Uh, could you l- talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've pretty much been a Star Wars fan my whole life, like probably so many folks listening. And uh, yeah, it got into Star Wars at like eight years old. I fell in love because of The Empire Strikes Back, which will forever be the favorite film of my life. And, uh, you know, never looked back, grew up playing with the toys. You know, Star Wars has, has always been for me a world of imagination. Uh, it's the place that my imagination came alive as a child. And it's the place where my, my imagination comes alive as an adult. Um, and I think the wonder of something like Star Wars to allow your imagination to always play out no matter how old you are and to allow your imagination to mature with you is something quite wonderful. So when I was in college, I studied um, religions and, and theology. That's the worldview I work in. So I've always been fascinated with kind of the spiritual religious side of Star Wars. I did a lot of a lot of background studies on that stuff when I was in college and in grad school. And that even became a new way to love Star Wars. Uh, so, you know, I, we've been doing the Wampas Lair. We we hit 10 years back in October. So super proud of the fact that we're one of the longest running Star Wars shows out there. I don't I don't mean to sound like conceited here. We're certainly not one of the biggest or best, but we are one of the longest running. Um, it's been a, it's been a wild ride. So, of course, you know, always. When you when you start a podcast, as I'm sure you you've become aware, is you're just kind of plugged into Star Wars in a different way. Um, it's a double edged sword. Sometimes it's 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 really vexing, but overall it's pretty wonderful. So right, like just being kind of caught up in the Star Wars world. High Republic gets announced. Uh, a really good friend of mine who's been on your show in the past, uh, Greg Cass, great great guy. Uh, he's super into Star Wars literature. So of course you know anything new coming out, he's going to be the first to to inform me. And, uh, you know, just never look back. I mean, High Republic was I was super excited that we were getting a story prior to the prequels. Like This is an area 
I've always wanted to see explored. I love, again, like I, like I said, spirituality is, is a huge uh, proportion of my life. So I love Jedi. I love their stories. I love the force lore stuff. So to get something about the golden age Jedi, I was just like, Oh yes, yes. I can't wait to sink my lightsaber into that. Um, and yeah, it's like I said, obviously I, I, I particularly loved this book. I mean, every single thing I've read from high Republic has been just absolute aces. Uh, but this to me is, is just the premiere. It, in an interesting way, um, and I'm curious if you feel the same way, starting this book, the way I experienced it, that first read through, I, I kind of compare it to what folks must have felt like in 1977 as the Tana and the Devastator went over your head, right? Like there was just something immediately that grabbed you with this sense of wonder. And to be able to do that on a page with just words is a totally different kind of art. And that's exactly how I felt the first time I read this book. And there's been very few books in Star Wars in particular or in general that have grabbed me the way this book did. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully that helps. You know, I, I feel like I'm on one of those shows where it's like, you're a nerd. Prove your nerddom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have my my nerdometer here. That's, yeah, yeah. How uh, am I doing? <laughs> am I all right, Andrew? <laughs> You've broken it. What? I've got to get a replacement. <laughs> uh, I, I do want to say. Congrats on the 10 years. That is wild for me to think of just going into, I think this will be two years in, in January for for this show. So 10 years, that's a really incredible achievement, you know, for to, to talk about Star Wars for that long, but also to be plugged in in that unique and creative way. So that is that is an awesome achievement. And I love how you uh, you touched on kind of uh, comparing the the wonder and awe from experiencing the opening shot of A New Hope to the, you know, diving into this book and just kind of like a totally untapped experience. Uh, you know, A New Hope was the first movie that uh, my mom uh, showed me and my my brothers when we were, she was introducing us to Star Wars, and you know, rightfully so. You got to start off with Episode Four, uh, but there, yeah, there's something uh, something about diving into something totally different and new, especially with Star Wars, and I think that that's what's magical and captivating about, you know, even if it is just words on a page of this High Republic era is kind of uh, the unknown of it and the excitement that comes with it. Uh, and also the, the dread, as, as I have learned reading through it. But uh, it, it has been a journey that I have been excited about, uh, you know, having started, but also continuing to dive in uh, past past this season. So before we dive into the chapter 23 i've got my summary and then we can talk about what avar and elzar are doing on naboo on naboo avar chris and elzar man await an important meeting to help solve the hyperspace crisis at hand elzar enjoys a drink while they both reflect on what a peaceful retirement to the naboo lake country could look like at long last, they are met by Marlowe and Velis Santeca to discuss the legacy run. Marlowe and Velis agree to send some hyperlane specialists to assist Kevin Tarr's Navidroid project. However, Elzar cuts to a further point as he and Avar press the Santecas as to how the legacy run's disaster could have happened in the first place. Marlowe and Velis are insistent that it is impossible for anything to have been in the legacy run's path in hyperspace but Elzar senses they are hiding something from the Jedi. After Avar and Elzar leave, the Santecas ponder what might be at the heart of the problem. 
I was not expecting... Uh, actually, I guess I should have expected it just based on how Avar and Elzar's last chapter ended, but it was really... It was nice to be first back on Naboo. I wasn't expecting that, but then also to have this kind of heavy Senteca involvement. Before we even talk about the details, what were your kind of overall impressions of chapter 23? It's funny because like when we, you and I were communicating for a bit about coming on the show and I acted too slow and a lot of my favorite chapters were spoken for and uh, you were like, well, how about these two? And I, I look at them and I'm like, all right, I don't, fine. I just really want to be on your show. Um, so, but what's interesting is, is, is I've kind of like, I, I've listened through the two chapters a few times on, on Audible and then I sat down and reread them as well. Um, I was tempted to reread the book for a fourth time, but, uh, <laughs> but I, got, I got enough going on. And uh, I'll say this. I really, really like both these chapters and chapter 23, my overall takeaway, and and it just kind of hit me the first time I listened to it on Audible. And and again, we were talking a little bit before we recorded about, you know, some of, of, of how folks consume things in different ways, right? There are folks that prefer the Audible route. There are folks who prefer the the sitting down and reading. Um, sounds like you and I prefer the sit down and reading, but there is also something to be said for the Audible. And as I was listening through it, I was just like, Okay, we're by the lakes of Naboo with two flirty people. Uh, this is Attack of the Clones, and I love Attack of the Clones. So that was my huge buy, and I was like, okay, we are, we're like, we're we're swanking it up a bit here. Um, you mentioned earlier that like the book is kind of settling into itself now, and this is what I love about specifically Light of the Jedi because it follows the cinematic Star Wars stories of three acts. Right, we had the opening disaster. Now we're kind of figuring things out. The character development's really setting in. And then, of course, Act 3, minor spoiler, is kind of the the big battle, right? And uh, I've always preferred Act 2 of Star Wars movies because I love the character moments. That's kind of my bread and butter Star Wars. So yeah, I, Chapter 23 was, and I know we'll get into some of the intricacies of the the plotting itself, but yeah, I just I, it gave me a strong Attack of the Clones vibe, and uh, I, and while that's one of the most um, derided Star Wars movies, it's one of my favorite, and uh, and specifically for the corniness of those flirtations, and that's kind of how I found this this moment. It's like, all right, this is great. We're, we're thinking about maybe retiring together. Tell her here everything is soft and smooth, um, you know. So. <laughs> Uh, what about you? I mean, what, what did you think of it? You know, I I do have to say that your kind of initial impression of like, oh, wait, we've seen this before in Attack of the Clones. So that, that was the first thing that popped out to me after having, you know, kind of uh, realized like, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting Naboo. I thought it was going to be somewhere else. But, you know, uh, it was uh, almost, you know, it was a kind of familiarity amidst the, the the vast newness that is this whole book. Uh, so that was kind of cool to have that little parallel there with Avar and Elzar and uh, Anakin and Padme from Attack of the Clones. But I do love you know having these kind of slower chapters with the central characters, you know, Avar and Elzar in this chapter, where we get to learn more about who they are as Jedi, like how Avar and Elzar are both similar and I guess more different in their philosophy and approach to being a Jedi. And these chapters, I feel, uh, and this chapter in, in particular as well, kind of offers that. So I love kind of exploring more of the character driven moments that were I don't know if like lacking is the right word from part one because part one was very it was just an entirely different pace so there wasn't really the chance to have the moments to sit with the characters because we're just jumping around a lot uh, you know for for good reason as well but 
Yeah, no, I had heard in previous episodes from different guests that that there is something, you know, hinted at something between Avar and Elzar, and it was particularly uh, interesting to me in this chapter to to kind of see Avar's side of the story, because I think in a previous chapter it had been Elzar's POV, and he was kind of wondering, like, why she invited me as her partner on this mission, you know, why she's working with me, you know, and, and so here we get Avar's take where, I don't know, I, I thought it was pretty striking uh, that, you know, Avar has seemed kind of closed off and reserved as a character, but, you know, like you had mentioned, she, you know, being relaxed and at ease as they're waiting for their appointment, you know, she's kind of soaking in the serene environment, and we get this moment where she thinks briefly about what retiring there could look like, and that she would consider spending that time with Elzar Mann. So, like, there it is. Like, that's, you know, that's kind of what I've been waiting for. And it was, like, really, you know, it was kind of like, a, okay, hell yeah. Like, uh, we're getting kind of both sides of the coin now, where now we know that Avar has also got some feelings for Elzar. I love their relationship with one another. And because of their relationship, it's one of the reasons I love this book and The High Republic is the fact that we get to play with the reality that Jedi at this period are allowed to have some level of emotions and, and uh, almost emotional attachments to one another, right? It, it, there's clearly that still that vow of celibacy or whatever, but the, the kind of like austere uh, dogmatism of the prequel era is, is, is still not there, which is great. Um, there's a certain freedom to it that I really appreciate for these Jedi. And, you know, like you said, it is Avar is a, uh, She's even like as soon as she has the thought of like, oh, this could be nice with, with Elzar, but she won't let herself. She's like, no way I'd ever admit that to him. <laughs> <laughs> so she's still she's still holding her cards kind of close to her hand. But we know that the thought is there. And maybe it's a matter of a matter of time before either Elzar figures it out or they profess their love to each other and just retire early to Naboo because it seems like a great place to be. Uh we do find out that the the meeting today is crucial because you know another emergence has happened thousands more people died and chancellor so has increased the hyperspace closure uh, around Hetzal and this time senator noor from uh, you know the from the outer rim he did not object so it seems like everyone seems to be somewhat united behind this option now that things are getting really out of hand and that there's a, a renewed sense of urgency around what Avar and Elzar are here to do. So they are joined by their hosts, Marlowe and Vela Santeca. Uh, I did have to say uh, the inclusivity is great because they are a gay couple and we love that. That was nice to read. And Avar begins to reflect on the Santeca family and how they had made their fortune, I think, over a hundred years ago. And I love this part of the story, this part of the chapter where we find out kind of the the intricacies and like kind of the specifics behind just hyperspace and hyperspace lanes where the Santecas would, you know, sell kind of their prospected paths and lanes to like, you know, traders and governments that even set up kind of toll areas where you could download like your Google map of this hyperspace lane and, and for a fee. And it was just really interesting to hear kind of how hyperspace kind of came to the forefront and how it came to be with the Santecas. And I thought it was really cool kind of just like buying and selling access to these hyperspace lanes. It was just a, a nice touch here for some context around something that I feel like is more or less kind of taken for granted in Star Wars. Like, oh, hyperspace, cool. But now we're finding out the more of the specifics around how it came to be. 
Yeah. It was a neat thing because it's never really explicitly been explored in Star Wars. It's always been a given, right? Uh, hyperspace is just how we get from point A to point B very quickly. There's never been any exploration of it. One thing I just, a quick note I, I just noted as I was as I was kind of like revisiting these chapters for, for this, I just thought it was really interesting. Avar gets kind of annoyed at the guest droid because they've been waiting a while. And it just really struck home today because I've been on like, I've been on the phone with this particular company a lot in the last few days, like on hold constantly. And I was like, I feel that Avar. Thank you. Um, it just like sucks. It's too real. Forever. Yeah. It was way too real. Um, but yeah, it's kind of the same thing as you, you know, when, when they introduced uh, Vela and Marlo and you know, they're, they're a gay married couple. I'm like, yes, more of this star Wars. And again, bring it on screen. Stop just putting it in books. Um, yes. You know, so that, that representation matters beyond the page but uh we'll get there i'm confident i hope <laughs> yeah yeah um but yeah no it, it was so cool like we got introduced to the santeca idea from force awakens right we had uh lore santeca there who's this kind of like religion of the force prospector um and i think what's so neat is that they're building out here in this chapter is my immediate like this world comparison was that like they're kind of lewis and clark if you will they're they're the ones you know, going out there into the unknown. Now, granted, Lewis and Clark obviously went out there into known spaces and claimed that they were new, but similar, you know, that, that, that at least that desire for, for exploration is the same finding new ways, right? That was so much of the 14th and 15th century in, in Europe was finding new ways around the world. So like that, that spirit of, of adventure and exploration is, is really cool that that's what kind of defines the Santecas. And it's it's worth noting too, like there's an adventure and an excitement to that. But it seems like like you know, you you indicated, Andrew, like this has been hundreds of years now or, or they've established themselves as kind of the premier prospectors of hyperspace. And while maybe the original sentiment of the Santecos was that kind of spirit of exploration, you get the sense with Marlowe and Velas that it's more of a business, right? And and it almost as if they enjoy the profit of it all. Like they enjoy being very wealthy because of the ability to to explore and sell these hyperspace lanes. But it's the first time where, you know, we kind of get the physics of hyperspace somewhat explained. Like this idea that it's um, and, and then, you know, you get Avar kind of digesting what they say. Like, I think there's literally a line in the book where it says Avar will never forget this line. I mean, I'm not verbatim here, but essentially that's that's the spirit of of Avar's uh, observation is like, I'll never forget how they just explained that, that in hyperspace, it's as if time stands stills in a way. And Avar is just kind of contemplating the fact that when you enter hyperspace, you enter a reality divorced from normal reality. And uh, like part of me is like, wow, that's really trippy and heady. And, you know, this is pretty neat. Um, but it, it was cool to see hyperspace looked at in, in such a direct way. Right. Like it's always just been it's just been a means to an end in Star Wars. We've never really had to make sense of it. And it's kind of neat that they have to. And the thing that I enjoy most about this kind of exchange about the hyperspace stuff is that hyperspace, it's always been this given that nothing exists there, right? When the courses have been plotted, nothing else exists in those lanes. There's nothingness, just, just you. It's this, it's always been a given. And I think this is part of the thrill of the Nihil is that they represent a disruption of the given. They are chaos personified, right? Like that's kind of what they're all about is this is something we've always taken to be true. And now here's something countering that. 
that's what the Nihil are kind of representing as, as this, this force of disruption. And uh, I wrote down this quote, if you don't mind, real quick. Elzar says on page 180, pretending it's impossible, just waste time. And I just, I, I love that. I would love to throw that at a lot of politicians today. Um, you know, it's just like this kind of like ignorance of like, well, that shouldn't be able to happen. Well, it did. So let's stop wasting our time talking about how it shouldn't have because it did. So what do we do about it? And 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 that was like a point too where I'm like, yeah, Elzar, give it to him. Like you don't got time to waste like with the hypotheticals. Like this is a given. This is a reality, you know, like global climate change. Here's the facts. Stop pretending like it's not real. Yep. <laughs> like, <Yep. laughs> um, you know, like here's the, here's the, because the more you pretend you're just wasting time and time is precious specifically in the story, right? Like, like you said, there's, there's an urgency here. Like we need to figure this out. So a, it doesn't happen again. And B, hopefully we can continue to protect folks from the emergencies. Like I really appreciate Elzar's uh, urgency in this scene. Yeah. I, he's, he's been a character that, I'm still taking some time to warm up to a little bit. He's had, I think like he's a little bit too roguish at times for me, but I, I did appreciate how he was very to the point here where he is not about playing the same game that the, you know, Marlowe and Velis are, are playing and, and that Avar seems content to kind of like wait them out a little bit. You know, she does end up, you know, more, I guess, less aggressively uh, pressing them towards the the end of it. But Elzar is really trying to cut to the chase here. He's not about, uh, you know, kind of the, you know, pretending that it, like you said, that it that it's just not possible for whatever happened to the legacy run. They are bouncing around ideas as to what could have caused this disaster that, you know, I think they hypothesize, like if, if there was a mutiny or a pilot error or a ship malfunction, but none of those seem to make sense and, you know, really all that's left, or at least to us, especially just knowing what, what exactly happened, is that something must have forced the legacy run to veer off or have to make an evasive maneuver in this hyperspace lane, like you had mentioned, which is supposed to be empty. And Velis does clarify, quote, the nature of hyperspace means that there is never any reason to maneuver at all. It's empty. There's nothing to hit. Routes are precisely calculated to ensure collisions like this are impossible. But, you know, like Elzar said, and like you pointed out, that's just wasting time pretending like, oh, yeah, just because I think it's impossible means that we have to just like discount that. You know, I guess to me, I'm still wondering, OK, so so what was in the way? It seems like just from my, you know, my my more uh, ignorant compared to those who have read this book uh, point of view is that. I think something might have been put there intentionally, especially if if nothing is supposed to be there in the first place. I think that that something might have been placed there with a purpose, uh, which, you know, there's a lot more mystery and intrigue around this, especially knowing that what happened was not supposed to happen by like the very nature of what hyperspace is, which was very fascinating to read. And also, I'm, I'm still stuck with this description that both Avar and Captain Cassett in the first chapter used about the hyperspace that they were seeing or experiencing was that it seemed and looked sickly. So I've still got a lot of questions as to as to what is going on, but it was very fascinating to read that, yeah, just like what hyperspace is, it's supposed to be emptiness. And we'll get to a quote later on where uh, you had touched on how it's very much like a different reality in in some ways. I did find it interesting that Elzar 
gets this sense, which, uh, or I guess from from this chapter in Avar's point of view, she senses like this impulse through the force that Elzar is trying to communicate to her that Marlowe and Velis seem to be lying or hiding something from them when they say like it's impossible, like it, it can't happen, that they're they're lying, and. I'm trying to wonder why they would lie. You know, we, we had talked about, or you had mentioned that, you know, they have a lot of wealth and prestige. So maybe it's like there's a pride aspect here where like fear of losing their reputation. If it's like these assumptions that people have made about hyperspace for so long, thanks to the Santeca's discoveries might be wrong. So maybe there's some pride there or if there are, and and we'll find out, I guess, toward the end, some secrets that they're hanging on to. But it was definitely a twist that I wasn't expecting for them to be lying about this. It seems like a very urgent situation, but there is something that they're holding back here. And again, it was it was revealed through that kind of unique connection that Avar and Elzar have in the forest from their partnership from years down the line. But it was an interesting twist here where they are holding something back. Ah, uh, I love the way you just talked about that. I mean, I, uh, that's so cool. Like I never kind of saw it that way, but that's so true. It is this, um, cause again, like I'm, I'm, I, I want to make sure so as to not say anything that you've not yet read, right? Obviously these are, these are big questions. We are going to get a level of resolution later on, but I just love the angle you're, you're looking at this from of what do they have to gain by lying? Right. Like they've they've already committed like, OK, we'll we'll go help this Kevin Tar guy kind of act like philanthropists. <laughs> um, and yet there's still something more. So, yeah, like, of course, they're thinking again, like if we've got to protect the Santeca name, we've got to protect Santeca Exploration Incorporated or whatever they might be called. Right. It makes sense that they're holding something back. And it's funny, like I appreciate you taking that POV because my POV of that moment is simply from the Elzar and Avar side, which is. Avar picks up on the fact that Elzar wants to do what's in here called a mind touch, otherwise mm. known as mind trick, right? And I thought it was interesting that the way they describe it, and again, like I'll say this probably all the time with Talking High Republic, the way they just break down the Force and the Jedi's relationship with the Force is just excellent. And they they reflect on how the fact that the mind touch is a tool of the light. And in Elzar's mind, it's a way of helping those who might be reluctant for whatever reason to be open to the truth of the force, to the will of the force. So it's like, okay, like that's a really neat way to look at that. And uh, just to like meander off for a quick second to talk about uh, Phantom Menace. (laughs) Um, I'll I'll take any chance I can to talk prequels. (laughs) Um, But when Qui-Gon uses that on Boss Nass, right at the beginning to, to get them a transport, it's kind of about expediating something without manipulating every little thing, right? Like he doesn't use that ability to manipulate boss Nass into working with the Naboo. Like he respects the fact that there is an animosity between these two cultures. So he understands I've got to move on. So the will of the force is for me to go help the Naboo. They're not going to help. So here I'll help him see the light. Um, So I don't know. It just kind of like gave me a a different perspective of even how to look at those moments or, you know, you could look at the the classic first moment from a new hope where Obi-Wan uses it on the stormtroopers. Right. But in that moment, Avar says no. Right. And again, uh, kind of going back to something you spoke about earlier is there's clearly a strong bond between these two and, you know, that that ability, right? Like I, any of us who are fortunate enough to have someone we're that close to in life that you kind of can just have this nonverbal communication. Um, that's what's going on here. And Avar, Avar sells him not to. And I think for Avar, there's 
she understands that there's other ways to play folks like the Santecas. She's a little bit more wily than Elzar, as I would say. Yeah, they seem to be very different. For the strong bond that they do have, I think it's very interesting that in a lot of ways they can seem to be polar opposites as far as their approach to using the force in, in different situations, different different scenarios. We got a little bit about that when, uh, you know, before they even left on this mission, when they were still putting the pieces back uh, of the legacy run back together, where, you know, Elzar is much more, if you can use the force, then, then do it. You know, if you, to get what you want, then use it. That's why we have this ability. But then Avar is much more reserved. And as as you're saying, kind of finding different avenues to reach the same kind of end goal that Elzar kind of just drives straight through the median to get to where Avar <laughs> will take kind of the uh, the the side roads and uh, to get to. Uh, but I, I love how you mentioned and brought up the difference between, or at least how the Jedi call it the mind touch, but Elzar calls it the mind trick. And it's because, quote, he found it a more honest way to describe what was actually being done. I thought that was very interesting that, in a way, it seems that the Jedi tried to make it sound a little bit better than what it is in some situations like oh, it's it's a mind touch and Elzar's like no no it's a, it's a mind trick that that's what we're doing I don't know I remember there was like a moment from one of the legends Thrawn books where Luke like was hesitant to use the mind trick because he you know it was kind of like invading someone's mind in a way you know it, it was it's it can be very invasive and it just seems to me that in some ways the Jedi might be trying to avoid kind of like the real implications of what they're doing by calling it the mind touch instead of the mind trick. I don't know. I, I thought that was a very interesting contrast there between kind of the general term, but then Elzar, you know, kind of taking the more honest approach there. You know, do you think that they're trying to avoid that conversation or, or like you had also said, it is a tool of the light. So maybe like it, it can be a trick at times, but if it's not always the case, I don't know. What, what did you think about that? Just kind of that difference between the general Jedi term, but then Elazar kind of cutting to the chase there, you know, in, in his way, or at least with Avar perceiving him like a more quote, honest way to describe it. what do you think about that? Wow. Um, well, I didn't. So I'm, I'm going to think about it right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, this is, this is the advantage of getting to talk to somebody about things who's just see, who just key in on different attributes there. Something I like about Elzar's character is just kind of his honesty about things, about just like honestly understanding who Jedi are, what they do in the galaxy. And yeah, like just kind of that, that honest ass assertion that this isn't just a touch. It is a trick. That's part of part of the attraction to me to a character like Elzar is he doesn't you know, he doesn't sugarcoat, like you said, he's going to just say it like it is. And yeah, I mean, I like that because, again, at the end of the day, the Jedi, even in High Republic, are still kind of this institution. They are an institution of, of religiosity, if you will. And when institutional language is put forth, it's not always the most honest. So what I always love is that there are members of those organizations that tell it like it is. And that's who Elzar kind of is in that moment. Um, that's, I don't know, that's just kind of like my quick thoughts in light of the question, but I hadn't really thought of that. So uh, how are you making sense of that for yourself? I love that point where 
you had mentioned kind of the difference between the official kind of like by the book institutional term for what something is, but then also how there are those who they don't play that game. Like Elzar, as we find out in this chapter, he's not about playing the same game that the politicians, like the wealthy, that, you know, the more reserved like Avar do. He's more about cutting to the point. So I, I do think that there maybe is some some merit there where, you know, maybe it would be a bad look if everyone's like, oh, yeah, they're the Jedi go using another mind trick on us. And we're just like, no, the, the, diction- the Jedi dictionary says it's a mind touch. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, but I also appreciate, and this is kind of, especially in this moment of the chapter, it happens a couple times where you had mentioned Avar is sending him through the forest like this this very firm no. She's not saying it, but that's the the feeling that she's sending to him like, no, don't do this. There's a time and place. And, you know, this kind of ties into the end of the chapter when they do leave where Elzar is feeling frustrated, you know, where he knows that Marlo and Velis, like they were holding something back. They were lying in a way. And he was frustrated by that where Avar is, you know, like we, we made some progress. You should feel good about this. I wonder if just seeing that Elzar is not as comfortable with waiting around for like the will of the force as Avar is, I wonder if he'll lose his patience soon. Because I I don't think that it's always going to be like Avar saying no and then it always works out. Like I, I can't see that continuing to happen consistently where I think there might be a breaking point at some point. I just, it feels like very convenient right now for every time Avar to say no, Elzar listens, where I think just judging by this from the, from the past chapters as well, that Elzar, his personality will kind of push through that eventually. Cause you know, Avar is kind of trying to convince him to be pleased with what happened here, but just judging by their personalities, I tend to think that there's going to be like a breach in that wall at some point where it's like, no is not going to cut it eventually so i don't know i'm I'm very fascinated by their dynamic and their differences and approaches where yeah i i, I don't think the no trick is going to work forever i think elzar will end up using uh, you know the mind trick or some kind of more drastic force measures but i don't know that's just the feeling that i get because he is very frustrated you know and kind of a very different vibe from him than from avar coming out of this meeting at the end of the chapter you had mentioned earlier about the specific description of hyperspace that Velis gives. I, I want to read this passage here where he's describing, you know, after Avar asks if it's at all possible for something to drift into the hyperspace lane, Velis answers, quote, Hyperspace is not like real space. Once a ship or anything else enters it, there's no way to encounter anything. You're in a bubble of space-time that nothing else can interact with because each lane is, as far as we can tell, its own distinct plane of existence. I love that. There's something really fascinating and cool about learning what hypers... Like, you know, people... Like, again, we take it for granted, but, like, learning what hyperspace is. And I was not expecting a separate plane of existence. It was just, I love those those moments there where we get to explore more of like what we've, what we've become accustomed to in Star Wars, like from the very beginning. And now, I don't know, just I was not anticipating a separate plane of existence. But right now, hyperspace seems very, very like much cooler than, than it was before this chapter. Right. That's exactly the the point of how neat that is, is it, it, it's something that's just never really been, exp- it's always just been something we we take for granted. 
and uh, to get this kind of deeper take on it is just fascinating. Did we need it? Not particularly, but is it great? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and by saying, did we need, it? I don't, I don't mean that as a diminishing of the importance of it in this story, but it is just so cool to, to get it explored more. And, and I love when star Wars does that. I mean, heck my favorite thing in that exists in star Wars is the force and the force itself is constantly being dug into deeper and deeper. I mean, happened in the original trilogy. It continued in, in, in the prequels and then in, in the new stories. So it's cool to take something like hyperspace that's never been explicitly talked about and, uh, and, and to look at it in this specific reality. And I think that's the quote that you just read, Andrew, that, that leaves Avar saying, I'll never forget that. She had never heard of it that way either. It's almost as if that explanation gives her a sense of wonder and awe. Like you had said, you know, she mentions or she reflects on how like hyperspace and like the the galaxy, like the, like that knowledge leaves her feeling like, wow, this is very beautiful. But then also like it leaves her reeling at the same time where it's like they're so small and insignificant as she as she thinks about compared to kind of the vastness that's out there and the reality that's out there with hyperspace. And I also, you know, this is, I guess, jumping into 24, just like just briefly how Markion in chapter 24 has like a similar vibe about hyperspace where he thinks about it as, quote, beautiful and horrifying all at once. And and I love kind of that both Avar Chris and Markion Rowe have this same experience of hyperspace where there is a there is a beauty about it, but also it's kind of scary, like a you know separate plane of existence. Like there are these laws of physics that, like, almost can't be comprehended. You know, in some ways that it just it does leave you know whether someone's a Jedi, you know, one of the most powerful guardians of the galaxy, Marvel pun intended, I guess. Of and you know whether it's it's Markion Rowe, the Eye of the Nile, where you know all the same, it is to anyone, it is both beautiful and horrifying. I just I love that how Avar reflects on that, and then also how how Markion kind of experiences the same thing. It's just uh, that that parallel and that universal experience of what of kind of the majesty of space and hyperspace and the Force and the galaxy. It's 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 wonderful, I, I think. And the chapter ends kind of on a very mysterious note a cliffhanger of sorts where you know kind of cuts to marlo and velis they're sitting on the balcony they're reflecting on you know what this sounds like it could be and i'm just gonna gonna read it here quote it's not possible marlo answered she can't be alive she'd be beyond ancient i hope so velis said for her sake by all the gods i hope so and kind of between that he thinks of like the real reason behind the Santeca wealth and like the history of their clan, like where their wealth came from is this mysterious figure that they reference. And my first impression here was that I think that it, it and, and we'll find out in chapter 24 that it is Markion's friend that he thought of kind of in a previous chapter where he has this one friend who like wouldn't be good in a fight, but he's got her. And that was my first thought here. And we do find out right away like that it that it is in fact Markion's friend. But I don't know. Like the first time that you 
I guess it's kind of hard to ask like the first time that you read this, but just as to this kind of cliffhanger here where we get this kind of uh, the mysterious cut back away to the people that we've just been talking to when they can speak more freely, we find out what exactly they might have been hiding or why they would have been lying there because of this and towards this figure that they reference. Like, what what did you think about that? Like, it's hard to to think back to like first time I read it, but I'll say this, like, I, I love things like this because again, I just, I love that mystery aspect. That's, I mean, that for sure. I remember it's like, oh my gosh, who, who is this? Like, who are they thinking of? You know? So it just, it just heightens the, the anxiety in a way. And it, and it heightens the, your buy into the story. Cause it's like, well, I, I need to know, I got to keep reading. And, and that's what I feel like. again, like the high Republic books just do a good job of making you want to turn the page. It feels like almost every chapter ends with asking a question without asking a question, <laughs> you know? So, and, and like, I feel like this is what High Republic does very well. So the way they end this with like this speculation of who could this be? Well, keep reading. Um, and luckily for us, it's literally turned the page. <laughs> so, Which is very welcome just because uh, there have been so many moments where we'd have to wait like a few chapters before finding out what happens. And, and literally, like you said, it's just the turn of the page and boom, it's like right there what exactly is being referenced. So I guess on that note, I can give my summary for chapter 24 and then we can talk about Marquion Rowe and his friend. On his flagship, the Gaze Electric, Marquion Rowe watches the swirls of hyperspace as Marie Santeca navigates the ship, charting a new path. Marquion reflects on how Marie has been the key to his success with her unique ability to chart courses that no droid or being were capable of. Marie resists being drawn from her navigational trance, and Marquion resorts to force to bring her back to consciousness although he recognizes how crucial it is to keep her alive and well in order to further his plans. Although Marie asks for a rest, Marquion requests further help, asking if the Republic's project to predict where more emergences will be is even possible. To his shock, Marie says she could help him accomplish that goal soon, after a break. With this new knowledge unlocking countless untold possibilities, Marquion sends the Tempest Runners on their next missions. Yeah, uh, Marie Santeca uh, is the key to Marquion's success, to the Santeca's success. What were your thoughts on Chapter 24 and this reveal as to, like, really, like, where the heart of this power and knowledge and, like, the paths and everything, like, where it all comes from? What do you think? It's unsettling because it's all coerced, right? Poor Marie has been essentially manipulated her whole life. You know, we're told in the chapter that she's been a hyperspace prospector since the age of six, which, by the way... Aren't there any label, labor laws in the Republic? Um, yeah, what the heck? <laughs> come on. Yeah, jeez. But yeah, like it just seems I didn't quite think of it as, as as specifically as you just mentioned, but she is the mastermind behind the Santeca fortune. And clearly like she was just forgotten. Um obviously we get the specifics of what happened to her. She's basically abducted by Martian's family, but now he's also just playing her. So it's it's this very unsettling aspect that this one character who's kind of at the heart of all of this doesn't really get her own full agency and uh you know it's part of what like makes 
Marciana another like another aspect that makes him a good villain. And also a reminder that the, the other Santecas aren't such wonderful people either, right? Like they put profit over people, like a lot of business people do. Um and uh I appreciated when I say appreciate, I mean I don't like it, but like I appreciate that that aspect of 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 creating a deeper sense of villainy. And I also really like that she's essentially an oracle figure. I'm thinking of that even more in light of, you know, the way you really expounded on kind of this trippy side of the of hyperspace from our previous chapter. I mean, this opens with her kind of lost in the ecstasy of that experience. And that ecstasy is just being taken advantage of. The chapter opens with him like, ah, I'll let her have her fun for a little bit. But then like he basically brings her back through brute force. She's only allowed to enjoy the ecstasy insofar as it serves others. Um, and that's highly problematic. That's exactly the, I mean, she's, she is this like, you know, like an ancient Greek Oracle, you, you go to them because they have this ecstatic, uh, capability, but more often than not, folks go to them just because they want something and they only use you in so far as you serve them. Um, so I like how she kind of fits that archetype of like ancient mythology. Again, so cool how Star Wars ties that stuff into its own storytelling mythology. What were your kind of overall thoughts? I mean, that's, I I love that point where, you know, from what we read in this chapter, like she enjoys like this, you know, like the experience of finding these new paths and charting these new courses. But it's like the tragedy of it. Like you, I love that point. You know, I, I love it and I, and I hate it as well, just because it's such a, it's such a tragic point is that you're right. Like she is only, even from her own family, like this is not only starting with Markion and, and like his family, but even with the Santeca, she was really only allowed to be that prospector to serve the profits of those around her. And it's, it's really, it's sad. And I think that, you know, if there was a feeling that I left this chapter with, it was sadness for Marie and her situation because it, it, it's really I think I just wrote in the mar- in the margins multiple times like it's it's horrible like you know what that she has been used like pretty much all her life and you know I, I hadn't really thought about that in the context of also her being with the Santeca family as well like you know from when she was six like she was being used for that purpose as well like you know thank you for for pointing that out that it wasn't only with the rose it was also with her own family so it's a it's a tragic story and we'll we'll talk more about the details as we move through i i did want to get your opinion on one of the first things that and it has been mentioned earlier in the book uh when i think markion was introduced but the gaze electric as far as a ship name uh i wrote uh do better <laughs> like <laughs> i wrote do better like what do you think of the gaze electric as the flagship name i'm not impressed personally <laughs> clearly i'm just kind of ambivalent because i've never thought like oh that's so cool and i also i also didn't have that reaction of like oh that's kind of weak uh, it's just it's fine to me but to be fair like you hold that up to the other famous ship from the story legacy run like legacy run is like that's a that's a good name that's a good star wars ship name but yeah i don't know kind of ambivalent still like it's it's fine <laughs> quote it's fine <laughs> i i mean i like that the word gaze is in there just because like it's it's the ship that's the eyes it's the eyes ship mm. right so gaze maybe just electric is silly so maybe just swap maybe just call it the gaze i don't know but i mean gaze <laughs> works for me because 
it's they're the eye like this has always been the, yeah. the ship that belongs to the eye of the Nihil. So I like the I like the idea that gazes in there. But yeah, electric is like it, it's a little like, I don't know, I feel like I'm watching like mid 90s American gladiators like and in this, you know, they'll be going up against turbo and electro. <laughs> you know? So it does have a little bit of that vibe to it. It's like Markian's been watching too much like WWE and you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The gaze electric. It, it has a like a, a paint scheme on it that looks like a speedo around its midsection or something. <laughs> we found you on Markian. We see you. Yeah. <laughs> right off the bat, we find out the answer to the question at the end of twenty three that Marie Santeca is at the heart of this, which is a lot of power in the hands of Markian Rowe. Probably not good for the Republic, maybe definitely not good for the Republic, but that she is the, quote, finite resource that Markian was talking about uh, to the the Tempest runners as far as how the paths are produced. And, you know, more about Marie, we find out, you know, she's there kind of, uh, Markian is in her, like, navigational chamber, so this isn't on the bridge. We find out later that it's, you know, she is very much a secret that's being kept by Markian for reasons that we can, we'll we'll discuss uh, a little bit down the line, but, uh, you know, she's in this sealed pod with, like, tubes and wires all over it, basically keeping her as comfortable and healthy as possible because she's well over a hundred years old, so... It seems that Markian is keeping her alive specifically for the purpose that she has been used for all of her life. And she seems to, or as Markian reflects on it, she has this like unique ability to quote, find the roads between the roads with like this with instinct and also like the ability to to compute like these mathematical analyses that, you know, she can't explain. First things first, you know, she can find the roads between roads, but can she find the world between worlds? I don't know. Um, (laughs) um, But I don't know if you have read the newer canon Thrawn trilogy, because this reminded me a lot of the Chiss Skywalkers. I've not I've not read any of them. Um, I read a couple of the Thrawn's just not my flavor of Star Wars. Oh, well. Um, it was great having you on the episode. Uh, bye. <laughs> One of my good friends has like found a whole new love of Star Wars because of her love of Thrawn. And I'm just like, yeah, it's just a character that's never it's fine. That's fair. Yeah, but it's I, fine. Gays electric <laughs> Thrawn. You're fine. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I hate that you made that parallel, but at the same time, I love it. That's bold. I love it. <laughs> Earlier, you had mentioned that Markian resorted to brute force to draw her out of kind of the ecstasy of the navigating and finding and charting that path. We do see in this chapter the dark side of Markian. We hadn't really gotten that in the introductory chapter to him i was of the of the mind that oh he seems like very different from the tempest runners where like they're about all this violence and like he seems like he's not about it and then this chapter is like nah nah andrew he's he's about it i guess in in that way like i you know i was proven wrong but also it's it was deeply unsettling like you had mentioned because i don't know he he does draw her out of this trance with like electric shocks like over and over and over Ooh, maybe that's why it's called the gaze electric oh, oh. <laughs> we figured it out andrew <laughs> so it's about him oh, gazing I... 
And when you don't comply, you get electric. <laughs> I hate that, but it's also, but it tracks as well. <laughs> he was, I mean, he was going off on it. It was, I mean, I laugh, but I also like, uh, I really felt bad for Marie because, you know, he's just, he's torturing her to get what he wants. Like you, and, and I think from this chapter, he, he refers to her as like the closest family that he had left. But there he also goes torturing her, you know, kind of just shock after shock after shock until she she goes into a seizure yeah, and then wakes up. And it was real. it was hard to read, especially because she is very old and, you know, I, I guess in some ways, like more obviously more like fragile than than Markion. Like he has to really take care to not kill her because she shouldn't really be alive you know like uh, she's over well over 100 years old and like it's really that life support that's keeping her alive to an extent i don't know about you i think one of the more heartbreaking parts to this the torture aside which you know not really like putting it aside because it's it's like a direct result here when she wakes up and is responsive she doesn't really even realize what just happened mm. you know she has this smile on her face you know asking like oh um you know did i lose myself again you you know how you know how i get when i take us traveling like she is totally unaware of what she is being subjected to i thought that was one of the more heartbreaking parts of this chapter is that she doesn't even know it was very hard to read but i think that that like twisted the knife even more is that she's she doesn't even know what is really happening here and probably doesn't even realize that she is being tortured uh, at will by Markeon Rowe. Yeah, it's messed up. I mean, one of the things for for sure that I thought of as I was reading it this time as well is, you know, you mentioned this, right? She's being kept alive on machines because even as the the previous chapter alludes, oh, there's no way they could still be alive. They'd be beyond ancient. She is. And something that just kind of made me think about was like, this is Palpatine in episode nine. I know a lot of folks didn't like that he's there and all that. And that, put it aside because it's there. <laughs> you just have, I mean, it's there. So like you got to contend with it to some degree. And the reason, I mean, the reason I liked it in nine and even somewhat like it here. And when I say liked it, I like that it is this dark form of manipulation, right? Like this is what kind of defines darkness in Star Wars is that Jedi at the end of the day are always about letting life happen you know, uh, like going with the flow, if you will, whereas the dark side, um, and I'm not even specifically talking about Sith and stuff, but like the folks that dwell in the darkness, they use anything they can to hold on to what they want. Um, and that's what Markion is doing here is he is using machines. He's using technology, anything he can to hold on to this person that, like you said, is, is weirdly like a family member to him. But um, things that we're going to learn later on is he's had a very messed up family, um, which is why he's OK with torturing her. And what's interesting is, again, like the, they're being kept alive beyond natural means. You know, that that's true of Palpatine. That's true here of Murray, that Markion is doing everything at his disposal to keep her alive. Yeah, like that's that's pretty dark. You know, you don't have to be a Sith to like dwell in that darkness and use that darkness. I was I was reminded um from uh, I think a point uh that uh Devor from a larger view of the Force uh 
mentioned uh, one of the shows I, I listened to is kind of like what you were pointing out there is the difference between kind of the light and dark approach to life i guess where you know even with like thinking of like the jedi and their force ghosts like that's kind of like a natural progression of the the force and 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 life where like the sith with like palpatine being kept alive by like tubes and machines and all that and here with the same thing it's like very much against the the natural order of things it's like manipulating nature and life to like to hold on still like when you're not really supposed to and it's it's Hard to, to see that, that that is Marie's reality here, and she does not realize it at all. Markian does reflect on the goals of his dad, uh, Asgar Roe, and how he's trying to complete like the visions for what like the family could become. And I touched on this in a previous episode where he was thinking about the Jedi Order and how the thing about the Jedi that worried him most was their unity and togetherness and like their united sense of purpose and here he's thinking that like the nihil they can't really become what he wants them to be in like their current state kind of disorganized you know pirates criminals like he needs them to be more i have this prediction or this thought that he's gonna like he is going to seize more control in the nihil to like restructure like reorganize them to be a more potent force and i just think like that it's been mentioned a couple of times where he's like very displeased with how disorganized they are but then that's what he kind of like looks that looks up to with the jedi order but that's what he fears most about them is their togetherness and um it definitely seems like he wants the nihil to be something similar two different ends but it seems like that that vision is very much what he wants so it'd be interesting to see like what that looks like if he's able to to get that done. I I thought that uh, it was interesting when uh, Marie kind of she comments to him that like your your father like never worked me as hard as you do, and and he was already like frustrated with her for wanting to rest after he requested help again. But that kind of I don't know if it was a jab from Marie, but it was kind of just it, I think you you had mentioned like. Uh, complicated family life for Markion, and it seems to very much be the case here where he like he had to try really hard to not shock her there after making that comment i think like being compared to his father i think first kasav did that in a previous chapter and now she's doing that here where it seems like there is some like legacy issues where he you know he's trying to claim like break free from that past but i thought it was very interesting that Maybe his dad isn't this figure that he really has like looked up to. It seems like there's some some tension there where he really has to strain to control himself there after she made that specific comment. Yeah. No, and I think that's like a brief little moment that gives us a glimpse into his broken humanity, right? Um, again, I don't know if he's actually human. Um, it's never explicitly said. He's a humanoid, though, at least. <laughs> um, and I really actually enjoyed that that little moment because it does it's kind of this window into well he's every little you know young person who grew up with a demanding parent figure or people who threw jabs at you for not being what you were supposed to be or living up to what folks expectations were of you and i think that that's a very human thing so like you can get it but but Markian's, you know immediate desire to want to inflict violence is a reminder that he is he's a bad person. He's the bad guy, <laughs> you know, so it, it sucks when like people compare us to others and, and and thereby kind of insinuate that we aren't good enough. Like that is a frustrating thing. 
Um, but what do you do with that? You know, is, is also incredibly definitive. It, it, that's Ben Solo, you know, uh, Ben Solo didn't like being compared to others legacies and that got manipulated in him. It's a really interesting point there for sure. And um, but I want to go back to what you were saying about his kind of grand plan is, is he's clearly ha- and and clearly he has shared portions or large portions of whatever his grand plan is with Marie. She's the only person he trusts with it, it it seems. And my guess is there's probably a bit of this both and to why he trusts her with it. I think there is like this twisted sense of familial tie to her, right? As, As twisted as that might be, there is this sense of like, well, she is like a family to me. She's always been part of my life. But also I think that there's this, this confidence of I control her. So she can't share this. I mean, she is like you mentioned earlier, she's locked away in this part of the ship. She is a secret that only he knows about. And then, you know, the, the Shadra fan, Dr. Uta sound or utter sound, whatever his name is. I can't remember, but um, that's it. So she's not really a threat, but this whole idea of this master plan, you know, I mean, that's the story of the prequels. There was a guy with a master plan and look at the tragedy that wrought on the galaxy. So this, by the way, what I'm about to share is not in any way going to, this is still my big prediction of where High Republic is taking us. This is in no way fleshed out later on in, in, in the future books. But uh, my big thing is, is like wherever the High Republic takes us is my sense of it is it's going to show us why the Jedi are the way they are in the prequels, why they are dogmatic, why they are very detached emotionally is it's whatever the Nihil calls into question for them. They kind of double down on this more reactionary take. So whatever his grand plan is, like you said, I mean, he, he recognizes the unity of the Jedi and that's something that does not exist in the Nihil and he needs to remake them and he understands that and he wants to do that. And I think we get hints as to how he's going to do that with his relationship to Marie that's introduced here in this chapter is what's interesting is, is like, like you said, she comes out of this, even though she's been brutally shocked out of her ecstasy, she doesn't seem to be aware of that. And she also seems to think that she's doing good, right? Like she's giving these things to Mark Markian and he's selling them to the Republic and to others. She understands he's making money off of her, but she sees that like her good work is going to good purpose. I don't think she really understands. So again, like whatever he's shared with her about her master plan, he's shared the pretty view of it. And again, like I think to get a little meta here for a second, that I think the era in which these books are being written, there's a brilliance to it because it sets up the terrifying reality of what we do with information and how we present information and how we lie with our information. That's what Marcion is doing to her is he's manipulating her. He's lying to her. Um, and I feel like whatever his plan is, there, that's going to be a huge element of it. Um, and I don't want to say too much because I do know where, I mean, you don't get all the answers right away, but like you definitely get more answers later in the book. <laughs> um, th- this was fun kind of revisiting these chapters because it's like, oh, that's right. It even starts here is, you know, he's manipulating Marie with tidbits of truth, lies embedded within that truth. And again, I just I like that this is the kind of villain we're being given now. Again, if Star Wars is a modern myth, it needs to inform us in the here and now. And in the here and now is we live in a world full of disinformation and that causes tremendous chaos. <laughs> um, and I like that that is what Marcion feeds on. That is what he himself is the proprietor of. He is doing this with her 
specifically. So she is like, she's still even in this days of like, well, I'm doing good. And I even feel like that comment, you know, that she makes to him about, oh, you know, but your father never worked me like this. We're reading this off of a book page. So we interpret how she presents that. Like, is it a jab? Is it meant to belittle him? Or is it just more of like an, uh, an observation of like, wow, you're really tough, <laughs> you know, like almost almost kind of like a, a silly in a sense. We don't exactly know. And even still, like in the audiobook, the narrator still is choosing their own interpretation and how they even choose to read it. It's just really fascinating that Marie, for all intents and purposes, is a good person who has a gift and that gift has always been manipulated. And like we were saying earlier, it continues to be manipulated. But yeah, it's it's good stuff because what's going to continue to make this story compelling is what is Marquion after? What is this legacy he's trying to fulfill in his own way? And how's he going to get there? And again, what we're, what we're, like I said, what we're seeing here is his tactics are misinformation. Yeah, it's, it's, he's really doing an expert job at kind of pulling the strings around Marie and, you know, obviously taking advantage of her current mental state, you know, where she does think that she's kind of just doing the same work that she's been doing all her life, you know, just kind of uh, finding these paths to be bought and sold, you know, to, to whoever. I did think it was interesting that Markion, like with these new paths that she's charting, he is keeping those for himself. He's he's not like he hasn't used kind of these newer ones yet. So clearly there is like an agenda here that that he has. I'm still wondering as you know what that end is. Uh, but you know, she does end up saying very casually that you know, this project that the Republic is working on to, you know, piece together all these Navidroids to predict where the emergences are going to happen before they do, like, yeah, I can do that. Just, like, feed me, like, really quick, and then I can tell you how. Like, it was very casual from her, but I think also a testament to how powerful she is with this ability. Um, but it's it's really emphasized how huge this is for Markion, where he thinks that everything has become like crystal clear for him in that moment that he now knows the path that he has to take now based on what Marie just told him that yes, she can in fact do right there, like what the Republic is trying to do. And I'm I'm just left like, you know, because he, he reflects on that as well after the chapter ends when he kind of sends the Tempest Runners on their next mission uh, to pop up, you know, where these emergencies that haven't happened yet, where they will happen. So he's going to use that information from Marie to give to them. But he says to to do it without paths, like find your own way to do it. The Republic will will be there or they're trying to do the same thing. So like use your best people, but he's sending them out to these places where the emergencies haven't happened yet, but they will uh, to take advantage of the situations there. But he still ruminates on how, how things are clear to him now, given this information from Marie. And at this point, I, I guess I can see it as him like predicting, you know, with the Republic moving out into the outer rim, like being able to, predict their next moves before they even get there or make them like maybe he that's how he can thwart the jedis like knowing well they're where they'll turn up before they do like i i'm still like have a lot of questions about what has become clear for him there based on this information i'm just uh kind of thinking about it in terms of thwarting the republic and the jedi as they expand and maybe how he'll counteract that but that is how the chapter ends again with that thought that things have become clear for him leaving me 
you know, wondering what that clarity means for the galaxy, what it means for him and his plans, and how those will diverge from those of the Tempest Runners. You know, he doesn't trust the Nihil. I thought it was an interesting point that, you know, most everyone on his ship on on his flagship are either droids or hired mercenaries outside of the Nihil. So there is that like divide between him and kind of the body that he helps. So a lot of questions about what Markian wants you know, how he'll get there, but a big step here with the knowledge that Marie can give him. But that is how this chapter ends. That is how this episode ends. How are you feeling after we have, you know, talked about 23 and 24? There's a lot that's happened, a lot of, you know, a lot of good exposition, a lot of good plot. But but yeah, Carl, what are your uh, what are your thoughts as we close up with with the big pieces, these these big chunks of plot that we've been given? I, I'm convinced that my next tattoo across my chest is just going to be um, an Orabesh gaze electric. Um, so that's one thing for sure you've really helped sell me on um, is my next big tat. So thank you. Um, <laughs> and, I hate that so much. <laughs> and uh, on my back will be Thrawn with his eyes, you know, crossed out because he's dead to me. He's fine. Um, oh <laughs> no, I'm kidding. First um, and last time on the yeah, show. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And nobody's going to ever check out our show now because of what I've said. Um, but no, you know, it's, I, it just, it, it reminds me and, and, you know, as we record this, we're less than a week away from book three coming out and, and, you know, the final, the final wave of phase one is about to hit, you know, in just under a week. Um, so this is just, ex, just really amped up my excitement for the type of storytelling we've been consistently getting in the high Republic. It's this really great, uh, reminder of the fact that, as good as the Jedi are, there's something out there that's trying to disrupt it. And I, I, I really appreciate the points you were just making a lot about in this chapter 24, where for Markion, it really is his biggest fear is the order that they have this consistency to the Jedi that he must disrupt. But, uh, and, and sorry, this is a slight spoiler insofar as all I'm going to say is you still don't get the answer to this question as of yet which is awesome. I want to know why he's so hell bent on the Jedi, right? Like there seems to be something about his family's legacy, even implied here in this chapter. So where is he being driven by? What, what sort of trauma has he experienced at the hands of the Jedi that he's trying to work out by bringing them to their knees? It's what makes him such a, a terrifying villain because, and this was the boldness of the High Republic is, we're not doing the Sith. They are not the villains, right? That is not what this is about. So how do you take a non-Force user during the golden age of the Jedi and bring them to their knees? And like we all know in any story, every good villain thinks that they're the good guy. Thanos always thought he was the good guy, you know, um, Kylo Ren thinks he's doing the right thing. Markion thinks he's doing the right thing. And we get this a little more specific lens that in this chapter that the world, the galaxy will be a better place without the Jedi. And he's going to make sure that that happens. So yeah, it makes him extra terrifying. And it's cool how these two chapters play off one another in the sense of, you know, um, interestingly enough, Andrew, uh, I actually preferred chapter 23 to 24 because again, I love second act star Wars. So I love just kind of the tranquil beauty of being on Naboo. And then we get to go to wait for it, Andrew, the gaze electric. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, and, you know, we get this really 
dark, sinister space where someone is plotting to disrupt even that little bit of tranquility from our previous chapter. And right, like, yes, it's not all tranquil in 23. They are hellbent on figuring out how to save as many lives as possible. Cause you know, as, as you said, the book starts with a lot of death and destruction, but even in the midst of that moment of tranquility, we are immediately reminded that there is something here to disrupt even that small element of peace. So yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you purposely picked these two chapters to go together or not. Um, but I was when I like when I read them, I was just like, oh, these are just like they're perfect together. Right. Because the chapter 23 ends and you're like, oh, what are we thinking about in 24? Yeah. Here, here's what it is. Boom, right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and you definitely. Well, yeah, yeah. What about you? Because um, I'm, I'm super curious, too, because like this is as far as you've gotten. So, you know, where are you at with it? I mean, I I'm still like I'm I have zero clue as to as to really what Markion wants. Like that it's like there there are certain avenues that he can take to get there, but like, you know, you mentioned like he he does have like this fixation on the Jedi, but like but why? Aside from, you know, maybe he aspires to like the order and unity that they have and like, man, I wish like I wish we could have that over here. Like that's that's the only like reason i could see that he'd he'd be fixated on them but you're, you're right and like or i i wonder if you are right that there is some past trauma or experiences with them that would inform like this you know kind of this this vendetta of sorts against them but it's just i'm left with a lot more questions now uh you know really as to marie's role here if she'll ever kind of realize what Markion is uh you know and 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 what he's doing you know he did kind of note that her ability like he hasn't been able to duplicate it or replicate it but i wonder if he will be able to and obviously that that would spell curtains for marie but i i really i want her to be okay like you know she's just she's been through so much and it seems like there is much more yet to come uh, i i do think that his secret of keeping marie on board will get discovered i think maybe i think maybe, i don't know I, I think he and kasav are going to come to like some kind of like headbutt and i think maybe kasav will find out the truth and markion will kill him or something i don't know i think there's going to be some kind of uh, you know someone's going to find him out and he's going to have to make sure that that they're silenced so there's just a lot of questions but you know maybe some some predictions there but but yeah, Carl, uh, if if the listeners wanted to find you and your work on the interwebs, well, I think we know they, they don't loved want what they to, heard Andrew. today. <laughs> <laughs> my my it's fine with Thrawn has already disinterested everyone. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that ended there. <laughs> No, but could you tell them uh, the listeners like where they could uh, where they could find your work and what you do on the uh, on the interwebs? Sure, yeah. So um, you know, like I mentioned, uh, I've been doing a show called The Wampus Lair. Uh, you can obviously find that anywhere you find any other podcast. You know, Spotify, iTunes, all that stuff. Um, we're on Twitter at Wampus Lair uh, and Instagram at The Wampus Lair. I personally, and I because I, I know you also use both of those platforms as well. I don't know if you use others. I personally really enjoy Instagram because it's essentially me just getting to show images of things I love. And I love looking at other people's images, whether it's of their collections or just like cool Star Wars art. And I don't know, there's just less, there's less of the, the vice side of the fandom in my experience there. So, I mean, but yes, we are on Twitter. Uh, we have fun with Twitter too. 
So yeah, that's where you can find us. I also just, uh, just last week, if any of you are Marvel fans, I just launched a new Marvel show that I'll be doing monthly with a friend of mine called Marvelous Musings. Again, you can find that same ways. Um, it doesn't have social media yet. Me and my friend Katie, who I'm doing the show with, we haven't decided if we want to use social media um, or if I'll just promote it through Wampus Lair. But um, all the same. Yeah. So those are the two projects I'll I'll be busy with. So yeah. And, and you know, like I said at the start, I'm just so thankful for getting to be on the show. I, I, I love what you do here. You know, I'm a little behind on the light of the Jedi stuff. I got to, I got to catch up, but I, I absolutely ate up when you did master and apprentice. That was just uh, amazing. Um, but I just love the concept of your show. And, you know, uh, the advantage of when we started a decade ago was we were one of maybe six or seven star Wars shows. Um, so like, Anytime I thought of something unique, I was like, wow, we're the first ones to do it. I feel like there's now there's a million and one Star Wars shows just like ours, you know, just a couple of pals talking about Star Wars, which is which is wonderful. But I feel like your show is just such a breath of fresh air in in a very redundant Star Wars podcast community. I I don't mean that to be diminutive to the the countless shows out there because there are just so many good ones. It's hard to hear them all though. You know what I mean? Um, And I think you just, you're providing a really fresh thing in the Star Wars fan community and in the podcast community in in specific. Just want you to know that like you you really are bringing something super fresh and, uh, and yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. You know I mean? The guys at Star Wars Minute did that when they started that kind of show. And uh, um, I mean, I don't know if you're aware of that show or not, but they're a big deal. Um, but, you, you know, you've created something totally new with this kind of avenue towards the Star Wars literature world. And uh, yeah, I it just I just love that you do it. And even for folks that like we've had several times over the over the years of doing the show where we'll we'll review a book. I mean, we do it every now and then when there's something we really like. We've done it with all the main High Republic books. Um always have uh greg greg cast on we always love to have him yeah. on he's he's just like my literature guru but uh and, and i know we'll do it with fallen stars later next month but uh what's really fun is you know folks will often say like oh we don't have time to read the books but i feel like you're also giving folks a really easy way to uh, to consume these stories because it's not it's not a huge workload it's like you give this phenomenal you know, talk show on just a couple chapters. And, you know, and I, I don't mean this to say like, well, anybody can do it, but almost anybody could easily just like pick up the book, read 20 to 30 pages of two chapters, and then like dive into the the intricacies of the story thanks to your show. So again, I don't, I don't mean to like be completely like kissing your gaze electric here, but uh, <laughs> you know, like I, I just, I think it's really important that like, you know, and folks that listen to you know, just like what a what a breath of fresh air you are in in the Star Wars community. Um, so thank you. Yeah, that, of course. That, that means a lot. You know, I I I will say maybe the drawback of going at this pace is that I am so behind on the High Republic right now. But no, but I, I really appreciate that, and and uh, I I'm glad glad to hear that from someone other than myself. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but Carl, this has been a really great conversation a really great discussion about these chapters i just want to thank you again so much for making the time to talk some light of the jedi Uh, i've had a really good time thank you so much yeah thank you it was my pleasure before we close out today i'll give our next search your readings discussion question we see a clear distinction between how the jedi refer to the quote mind touch and how elzarman refers to it instead as the quote mind trick Why do you think there is that gulf in terminology and understanding? 
Are the Jedi not being as honest with themselves as Elzar is? Are they trying to make the ability seem more harmless than it actually might be? I will post the question to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, comment and send your responses on any of those platforms, or you can send them via email to outerrimreadspod at gmail.com with the subject line, search your readings. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media to stay connected to the show, you can follow us on Twitter at Outer Rim Read Pod and on Facebook and Instagram at Outer Rim Reads Pod. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash Outer Rim Reads. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha, it is hosted by Andrew Geha, this episode was edited by Andrew Geha, and it is produced by Andrew Geha as well as Simon Van Bakum. We'll be back in two weeks with episode 50, halfway to 100. That is wild. So until then, sit back and enjoy. And don't mind the bags over there. I'm just packing my things for a trip. I hear the Nabule country is quite beautiful.